I, I want to be held accountable for what I'm doing. You know, this may sound like an, an exaggeration, but it was like the 9-11 of my career and certainly of making kombucha. Jesus is smart. This idea of income inequality, that always strikes me as a very, it's a deceptive term, income inequality. Well, let's flip it around. It comes from outcome inequality. In five, four, three, two. Hello, welcome to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. Uh, Today... As you might hear, we're talking about Gaston Glock and the firearms industry. My name is Sean P. McCarthy. I'm joined by my fellow firearms experts. Steve Jeffries. Andy Palmer. And, uh, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast about how billionaires maybe don't create anything, don't invent anything, don't really do anything. But Gaston Glock is not that person. Because today we're talking about a billionaire who created a murder epidemic. And, uh... You know, and, and so I guess I just wanted to start before we even really get into what he is, uh, who he is, what he's done. Uh, do you, Andy, Steve, do you have any personal experience with Glock firearms? So I've never actually fired a gun. Mm-hmm. So all of my knowledge about guns comes in preparing for this episode. Yes. Um, I've fired shotguns and uh, 22s and one revolver. Right. Well, that's about it. Well, so I'll, I'll tell my stories in a second. But, you know, like, we talk about... And, of course, these guns I have right here in the studio. <laughs> yes. We went out to the range to record this episode <laughs> so that we could get the live drops. I've seen guns on TV. <laughs> it's fucking... You were, uh, I've played GoldenEye and Counter-Strike. It's too bad we don't have the video set up, because watching Andy flip between <laughs> these guns... Just... <laughs> <laughs> just put down the fucking MG42 and pick up a sniper rifle within half a second and squeeze off a round just in order to get the sound effect. Pretty incredible to watch. But yeah, so I guess what I wanted to say for Gaston Glock is that um, you might wonder what he's created. And uh, it's uh, those stories you read about how the police officers shoot a guy on his the way to his wedding 500 times. Uh, he created those newspaper stories because what happened in the United States is um, uh, police officers used to carry six-shot revolvers, and then they switched to uh, Glock 17s that have uh, 17 rounds and a semi-automatic clip, and now it's like, you know, it's the preferred brand if you want to take out Sean Bell on the way to his wedding and, and shoot him 400 times <laughs> because, you know, it, it used to be cops would squeeze off two or three rounds in an incident, but now uh, the statistics say generally cops shoot at least five or six times in any shooting incident so you know that's that's just kind of what has changed changed in this country even as it has gotten safer you know of cops and everybody shoots more because everybody has semi-automatic pistols now there's a um fun news story about a, a guy with a gun near the empire state building a couple years ago um and the cops came and shot him and all of the bystanders there were like five different bystanders who got hit they all got shot by the cops <laughs> Yeah, I remember that. Glock is uh, the preferred gun of police officers who want to shoot somebody in their home or yard. Well, they're like, especially, we'll get into it, I guess. <laughs> wait, wait, he's but, reaching um... for a cell phone. Andy, he's got a cell phone. IED! He's trying to get his driver's license. Andy, driver's license! Good job. That's Bullet Impact Body 1. This is Bullet Impact Body 2. 
Oh He's trying to go to a wedding. <laughs> Andy, stop him before he reaches the wedding. Uh, well, we just passed the police firearms course. <laughs> uh, but look, what I wanted to say is just like two random experiences before we get into the biography of, of, of um, uh, Gaston Glock is uh, growing up in Seattle, I had two experiences with Glock, which is one, I called the, the cops because my, neighbor, my neighbor's house was getting broken into. I was like, I woke up and I saw that some guy smashed the window and was crawling in. So I called the cops and uh, uh, I didn't, I, I was young and stupid. I didn't know my neighbor's address. So I gave them my address and I said, it's the house next to that. And the cops show up at my address <laughs> and point a gun at me and make me and my brother get on the floor. And uh, and then they sorted it out later. But, you know, it's just <laughs> one of those things where it's like, it was kind of eerie reading this book because another thing Seattle's about- Seattle's best. Another thing Not about just the, a coffee. Another thing about the Glock is they don't actually, uh, by default, have an external safety. So, and it's also like a really light trigger. So there's like a five pound trigger as opposed to usually like a ten or a twelve pound trigger. So it was just interesting to read that and like know that the cops like had their finger right on the trigger which you're not supposed to and it's like <laughs> yeah just just a light breeze could have ended my life right there. <laughs> Oh, and then the other story I have with Glock is um, when I was in Seattle, I would I had a friend of a friend, friend of friends, I should say, who was a Coke dealer, and he was, like, always kind of shady, like, you know, I'd go over to, like, smoke pot with my friends, and he would, like, show up, and he would have, he would have a police scanner that he would uh, show us, or he would come in with a bulletproof vest, and so one day I'm, like, high on the couch at my friend's house, and he comes in uh, with a Glock and starts pointing at us. <laughs> And, uh, you know, that'll really enhance the weed paranoia <laughs> if somebody is showing off their Glock uh, in a demonstration. Oh, yeah. I don't know if it was a Glock, but I do have a dumbass friend who, like, got really into guns for a bit. Um, Sean, you know him. Oh, he yes. used to do a podcast with Yogi and he pointed, he, he, like, pulled his guns out of his trunk. And as a joke, he pointed it at me and it was... Uh, to listeners, it might be funny, but it wasn't that funny in the moment. Just having a load. He, I don't know if he was joking. He was like, it's loaded. And I'm like, oh, cool, cool. He was like, haha, bring back the drops, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so the story of Gaston Glock and how he became a billionaire is basically supplying the United States uh, police department and later the police departments and later the commercial market for guns in the United States. He's an Austrian inventor, but unsurprisingly, the gun market in the United States is the mother load. You know, like Beretta's an Italian company and, uh, you know, they have lots of European companies who make their money selling guns to the United States because unsurprisingly, with our 33,000 annual gun deaths, we lead <laughs> the way for anyone who really wants to make bank uh, supplying the tools needed to, you know, uh, fucking kill your ex-wife for trying to take the kids away or whatever else you might use a gun for. Seems like an inefficient system. Like, you know, someone, you know, most of them are suicides. Mm -hmm. And you might as well just put them back into circulation after that. <laughs> So that guy, that guy's not using them anymore. Well, it's interesting where, uh, 
I mean, we'll get into this, but Glock's entire marketing strategy and how Gaston Glock became a billionaire was selling to U.S. police departments. But then what they would do is they would buy the old Glocks back from police departments and like give them a discount on like newer Glocks or Glocks with like even more firepower. And then they would take those old police Glocks and sell them back to the civilian sector. So, you know, of course, civilian buyers want what the cops have or, you know, they want whatever the military has. So it's... It's a very good deal, and, and Glock, for its entire company history, has given a discount to police departments entirely because they understand that. Other other gun manufacturers have done this before. Glocks was just, like, expanding on it. Like, the NYPD, uh, for a while, they got really into buying 38 revolvers, like, in the 80s, and um, the manufacturer would buy them back from them. So, now nowadays, there's a whole bunch of cheap, like, it's like... Often people's first gun is right. like going and buying like surplus from the used like uh, lightly used refurbished poli- <laughs> police issued guns like that. Right, like, and so the irony here is uh, the Bush administration actually made the ATF, the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Bureau, made them stop publishing these statistics in I think two thousand two, early two thousands. But they used to like check the brand of gun that was seized in criminal raids. And they were finding, unsurprisingly, a large amount of the guns used to commission crimes were former cop guns. So you have the irony <laughs> of, like, uh, former police officer weapons even being used to kill cops or stick people up or whatever. I mean, we have the environment to think about. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, but so I guess we The get- coral reefs are dying. Yeah. But, uh, and so, like, the real catalyzing event. So I read this book, Glock, by Paul Barrett as a reporter. Um and it's pretty interesting. It just kind of goes through uh, the biography of Gaston Glock, but also the history of the Glock 17 in the United States, where today it's the dominant pistol in the U.S. market. And it's like an Austrian pistol. And it kind of goes through how that happened. Whereas, you know, before um, uh, cops in the United States until like the late 80s mostly carried revolvers, as we mentioned. And uh, he points out, Paul Barrett points out that even by like the mid to late 80s in the Soviet Union, the cops had, you know, nine millimeter semi-automatic guns, whereas uh, the U.S. police were very slow to change. And there's a, an incident in 19, uh, I think it's 85. There's a shootout um, in Miami between the FBI and two bank robbers where all the FBI agents have like revolvers and these bank robbers have semi-autos and, you know, uh, two agents get killed Um uh, and uh, three more get permanently injured. And this is kind of like a catalyzing event where police forces throughout the United States start switching over to semi-automatics after they after they hear about this. Police were still armed with those uh, 1830s pistols. <laughs> They're mostly wood. Right. And they realized there's a problem here. Yeah, like they we... had... They were tired of uh, ramming the powder down <laughs> to reload as the fucking bank robbers were going at them with M16s. What is the difference between a revolver and a semi-automatic? Because I assume, I thought semi-automatic just meant after you fire, it's ready to fire the next one. And a revolver a revolver, does you have that. to actually... I thought it cocks back on its own. Cock it back all... No. no well, not no. the ones that uh, the police, I think, were using right. in the shootout. Oh, okay. Yeah. Dude. I can't wait till the gun enthusiasts listen to this episode. We're gonna call. <laughs> we're gonna use the terms magazines and clips interchangeably, <laughs> just to make you grind yeah. your teeth. Um, I can't wait till we get to firing pin. Yeah, 
<laughs> right. Like, so this book Glock by Paul Barrett, it like does provide a pretty good description of, you know, the Glock and what makes it different in the manufacturer from other guns. But, you know, like I have no fucking idea. So I just kind of, I'm like, oh, so there's plastic in it. All right. That's the difference, you know. <laughs> But we'll get to that in a second. I wanted to start with uh, the biography of Gaston Glock. Gaston Glock was born 1929 in Austria. Uh, Forbes says, as of today, he's worth about $1.1 billion. But it should be noted, and we'll talk about it a little bit, He's uh, uh, Glock Incorporated is like privately held, so it, it's hard to understand uh, how much money he actually has. He also has set up a bunch of shell companies and, according to Paul Barrett's book, has engaged in clearly illegal tax avoidance using shell companies, uh, which we'll talk about. But my point here is just, we don't really know how much he's actually worth, but Forbes says about $1.1 billion net worth. He's also the uh, creator of about 95% of the floor of the East River. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Reclaimed land? Possibly in the future? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Just little little barnacles living inside hot glocks. <laughs> just like you have a gun island <laughs> the new spongebob squarepants who lives in like a glock with the serial number scratched off <laughs> thrown in the hudson river um so uh from the uh paul barrett book glock uh the story of gaston glock is again he's born 1929 in austria uh he becomes an engineer he's interestingly enough drafted into the hitler youth uh in the later part of world war ii uh, just quoting from the book here, uh, he he says he was just a few days in camps of the German army during the later stages of World War II, either 1944 or 45, around the time he was 15 or 16 years old. He says that was his first time seeing guns and weapons. He'd he heard it was a fast track to becoming Pope. <laughs> He said that was his first time uh, uh, seeing weapons. He received weapons trainings, but he claims he fled like after only two or three days. Um, Though, interestingly, on other occasions, he said that his training with the German military lasted only a single day. So he's, uh, you know, I mean, we have no idea. He's a big phony. Yeah. (laughs) He doesn't even know how long he trained with the Nazis. (laughs) Right. But they gave him weapons training around the time he was 15 or 16 years old. But that was kind of his only real experience in weapons. He becomes an engineer. Uh, He starts a manufacturing business uh, outside a a small town outside Vienna. Um, He's uh, working on car radiators. And then he and his wife start manufacturing like curtain rods and hinges and then what happens in small town Lentz? <laughs> yes. Uh, what happens in um, I believe it's the late seventies. He gets a contract with Austria's Ministry of Defense to supply field knives and bayonets to the Austrian army. So his wife and him are manufacturing curtain rods, and then he starts <laughs> making these knives for the Austrian army. Of his garage. Yeah. yeah. Um, He's just like taking old curtain rods and prying them open to make them bayonets, like filing <laughs> them by hand. <laughs> he shows them five and they're all different lengths yeah. and like not really sharp. They're like one of them sharp and he's like, oh, that yeah, like one, these, that these, one is, is worth $20, 20, 20 lira. These, are, these aren't going to work. Oh, what are you going to do? You're the Austrian military after World War II. Like, who are you going to buy weapons from without the United States reestablishing a base in here? But so the story and like it's really full of company mythology where nobody really knows what happens. But the story is, you know, he has this contract to provide the uh, Austrian army with bayonets and knives. And um, 
the story is in 1980, he's visiting uh, the Austrian uh, Ministry of Defense, and he overhears some people talking about how the Austrian Ministry of Defense needs a new pistol. They're still using, I think, the P-38 Luger, you know, the, the World War II uh, Nazi pistol. Uh, and so they need a new pistol. You know, it's 1980. It's right at the end of its life. And what happens is... Um, uh, Wait, they were using the Luger until 1980? Yeah. Damn. Um, but so the story that Gaston Glock oh, tells, oh, Sean, we're coming up on 15 minutes. <laughs> oh yes. We should mention, we finally got a sponsor. Uh, we hope you won't turn it off cause we sold out, but we did get a sponsor. So, uh, at 15 minutes, I do have to, uh, uh, do this ad read. Um, and so on this episode, we've talked a lot about how Gaston Glock is a bad person. Yes, we but- have Sean. But one thing we haven't said is that, that the Glock 17 is a bad gun. The Glock 17 is the most reliable pistol. And did you know, Andy? I did not. That the Austrian military, when they took the contract for the Glock 17, they tested it over 10,000 times uh, on multiple models with less than 10 misfires. That's a weird way to test it. Yes. So Glock is the the Glock 17 is the most reliable pistol. And you listener, who did they bring to Fashion Week after that? You listener, if there is a New York podcaster you've got a problem with, there is no more reliable gun than Glock. You know, maybe a, a New York podcaster didn't answer your Twitter or your Instagram DM, and you want to make sure they never forget that mistake. Uh, don't rely on a brand that that might jam up. When you show up unannounced at the public live show they've advertised on their Twitter or Instagram page, Glock 17 is the most reliable gun, and we recommend it to all podcast listeners. Yes, we do. Well, that was in the ad read, so... Okay, cool. You know what I like about ads? <laughs> yes. Uh, doing ads? Yeah. It's um, money for nothing. Well, we work hard for this podcast, and we deserve to cash out, you know? We've we've spent enough time promoting leftism. And moving microwave ovens and custom kitchen delivery. <laughs> uh, but so, we're talking... Uh, the ad read's over now. We're, we're back. We're back to Gaston, Gaston Glock. We're talking about how the Austrian military... Um, the story is that he overhears these two officials talking about how they need a new gun. Having never designed a gun before, he gets a bunch of gun ex- experts together. And within like two years, he builds the Glock 17, having never designed a gun before. Um, and the Glock 17 is, you know, partially plastic. It has a lot less parts than other similar guns at the time. It's uh, more reliable. It jams less. Uh, but so the actual story uh, that Paul Barrett lays out um, is kind of not the same as what Gaston Glock tells. Whereas, you know, like a lot of gun magazines will say, how did Gaston Glock design the best gun? Because he had never designed a gun before. So it wasn't like Beretta or uh, Smith & Wesson or whatever, where they have these big departments and you just, you can't innovate, you know? That's like the the whole argument is because Gaston Glock had never designed a gun before, he could throw the rule book out the window. And it seems like the actual story, according to Paul Barrett, is... Um, they said that on the magazines? It, various gun magazines. What about uh, the clips? <laughs> uh, the actual story, according to Paul Barrett, is that it was kind of a political thing, where the Austrian military needed to switch its guns away from the Luger, and Beretta had the, 
was going to be given the contract because Beretta had the best gun at the time, but Beretta was an Italian company. So the Austrian government, which was socialist at the time, uh, at least nominally socialist, uh, they said, we need an Austrian firm to make this gun. So the existing Austrian firm, their gun was kind of shitty. So what happened was two people from the Austrian Ministry of Defense kind of walked Gaston Glock through exactly what they needed in a gun. And it's in dispute how much they contributed versus how much he contributed. But what was clear is that the reason he became a billionaire was Austria needed an Austrian company to make this gun for the Austrian military. And so the Austrian military really helped him set up and get everything he needed in so order to... So they approached him before he even made a gun? Uh, well, that's in dispute. Oh, okay. But, uh, like, the way he says it is he heard they needed a gun and, like, pitched his services to them, and then these two Austrian military officials, like, really sat down with him and spent, like, two years kind of going through everything that they had learned about guns and helping him out to get everything just right, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like, I believe they both later went on to work in his company. But regardless... The, the point I'm, I'm, I'm getting at here is that it's kind of an accident of history where it's just the Austrian government needs a domestic company to make their gun. And uh, I'm sure he's a smart engineer, Gaston Glock, but he clearly got a lot of help <laughs> from people who didn't really get as much of a, a, a share of the proceeds as he did. Yeah, they're willing to make like federal gar- federally guarantee contracts for years and years, right? Right. Once like, he could prove the concept. Yeah. And, and that's why we support socialism. <laughs> <laughs> well, so it's interesting, like Gaston Glock is a member of the Austrian Socialist Party in the 80s, but I think it's pretty clear that he's just doing that to get government contracts because they were the ones in power. And later on, we'll talk a little bit, he uh, donates some of his massive fortune to the Austrian Freedom Party, which was founded by an SS officer. And uh, the leader throughout the 80s uh, made numerous remarks praising members of the SS and Hitler and other such things. Um, but you know, we'll get back to that. Nothing says freedom. <laughs> like, like what, Andy? Work. <laughs> uh, but so he invents the Glock 17 in like 81, 1981, 1982 is around the time. And in 1982, the Austrian defense ministry adopts it as their official firearm. And then from there, it's kind of on a rocket ship where, well, he makes this gun, which by all you know measures is a good gun. If you read Gun Enthusiasts, they say it's a reliable, good gun. Uh, it's not a bad gun, but how he actually becomes a billionaire is he finds someone else to market it for him to the United States, which, again, we've mentioned is the mother load of selling guns. It's, it's where all the money is. Uh, it's this guy named Carl Walter. Um, in the Paul Barrett book, he writes about Carl Walter was an Austrian-born gun dealer living in the United States. Like, he would go up and down the East Coast and sell guns. Um, and Carl Walter visits, he hears about, you know, this new pistol that the Austrian military has. He visits Gaston Glock in 1984 at his factory. Um, he tests it out. He's kind of blown away, and he tells him, you know, I can sell this to U.S. That's a, that's a bad <laughs> way to treat your <laughs> potential business partner. Uh, he, he tells, Carl Walter tells Gaston Glock, uh, I can sell this to U.S. police departments. And uh, Carl Walter actually brings a writer from Soldier of Fortune magazine, um, where uh, the book describes how gun writers and guns that's actually exactly what i told uh, an adderall distributor <laughs> uh the book describes how gun writers and um 
gun sellers have kind of a symbiotic relationship where, you know, gun sellers uh, can, uh, well, you know, the main advertisers in gun magazines and gun websites are, of course, gun sellers. So it makes sense that they kind of work hand in glove uh, to, you know, give each other exclusive scoops and also to open up new advertising opportunities for each other. So this writer from Soldier of Fortune magazine visits Gaston Glock, and in 1984, he writes the first uh, feature uh, about the Glock and how it's like a new wave of perfection and all this kind of stuff. Nice. Mm-hmm. And um, around this time, Gaston Glock gets a sweetheart land deal from a small town outside Vienna to set up his factory, you know, tax abatements and all that kind of stuff. Uh, according to the book, he's got about three dozen workers, uh, mostly Turkish immigrants, uh, making the gun on the day-to-day basis. Oh, another thing I found interesting is also around this time, Gaston Glock uh, prepares a special shipment for Hafez el-Assad, which is Bashar el-Assad's father. This is around 1984. He has like a, a special inscription where he sells, um, I think it's like 100 to uh, Hafez Assad's uh, bodyguards. That's when he was the good guy, right? Yes. Uh, let me just see if I can find this. Hafez el-Assad ordered uh, Glock 17s for his presidential guard. Gaston Glock prepared a special shipment of pistols for Assad with ornamental Arabic inscriptions inlaid in gold. And uh, should be noted around this time that uh, uh, Assad was sheltering a guy named um, Alois Brunner, A-L-O-I-S. Uh, it's a German name, a former Nazi who Heinrich, or sorry, Adolf Eichmann described as, quote, his best man, unquote. Uh, he'd been linked to at least 130,000 deaths during the Holocaust. And uh, Assad was sheltering this guy because he trained Assad's security forces uh, throughout the 70s and 80s. Well, he sounds indispensable. Yes. Uh, he would later insult Assad and he would die in a Syrian prison in 2001. Owned. Yeah. But um, I'd like to imagine that those Arabic inscriptions were just like, where is the library? <laughs> <laughs> but it is just something where it illustrates that Gaston Glock never had a strong moral compass. I think they talk about the guy, the, the Russian guy who invented the AK-47 had like had a lot of regrets about what his gun was used to do. Whereas Gaston Glock throughout his entire life has been like, it's not my fault if people take this semi-auto gun and fucking <laughs> uh, give them to a, a, a Nazi-adjacent dictator's bodyguards to execute dissidents with. Whenever, like, because there's the same story about uh, Gatling and then Alfred Nobel, where, the, like, Nobel, you know, made dynamite, Gatling made the Gatling gun, the precursor of the machine gun. Mm-hmm. And they're all, like, very sad, but it's also like, what? What were you expecting getting into the gun making business? Mm-hmm. Or di- I mean, I guess Nobel it makes a little more sense since it's used for mining, but mm-hmm. I'm just fucking crying as they fuck supermodels on their pile of blood money. <laughs> you think Gatling did that? I don't know. He uh, was more proud of his plow, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but what I wanted to say here is uh so uh, Gaston Glock meets this guy Carl Walter and Carl Walter would later be fired by Gaston Glock which I think is I mean it just shows again no loyalty because this is the guy who makes gas <laughs> this is the guy who who makes Gaston Glock a billionaire uh, because Carl Walter Gaston Glock barely speaks English 
He has no familiarity with the American market. He's just selling a pistol to the Austrian military. But Carl Walter realized there's a billion dollar market in the United States. And Carl Walter has enough experience that he knows how to sell to police departments. So Carl Walter becomes his point man in the United States. And in 1985, they set up a factory in Atlanta. Um, and Gaston Glock, sorry. And Gaston Glock is kind of an asshole boss throughout this time. Like he'll... Uh, visit the United States and everybody working for him in the United States dreads his visits because he's such a piece of shit. He's always ta- he has like an entourage of Austrian employees and he speaks to them in German about how incompetent the Americans are and how his employees who are American are stupid just because they're American, you know. So that kind of European. But um, I just liked from the Paul Barrett book, they, he said apparently Gaston Glock would complain when workers talked to one another on the job. He would say, like, if you have time to talk to one another, you should be working more. <laughs> you know, just like that kind of boss. Um, he uh, Gaston Glock gives this quote to a secretary, uh, which is, quote, every morning you have to slap everyone on the head in case they did something wrong, end quote. So, again, this kind of management technique, unsurprisingly, uh, is appealing to a man who invented a killing machine. Um <laughs> But it is something where, as Gaston Glock makes more and more money, he becomes more and more detached and more and more up his own ass and thinking, I did it all myself, where it's very clear that his fortune comes from other people setting up his U.S. operations and then fucking bribing police officers to switch to the Glock. Right. Which we'll get to here. Um, Oh, yeah, another interesting thing is Glock... Apparently, Gaston Glock complained when he visited the United States that one of his secretaries had bought, using company money, a $29 headset for answering calls to make it easier. Uh, he was one of those people who, like, was really fucking stingy about company expenses on anyone else. And he complained about them buying this $29 headset when the company was spending tens of thousands of dollars at a local Atlanta strip club, taking police officers out to uh, get lap dances and possibly have sex with uh, sex workers. Well, that's an important business expense. Yes. I mean, in fairness, that is pretty much the story (laughs) of how they got police officers to adopt the Glock 17, which, again, by all all measures, it's a fine gun. Well, yeah, I mean... (laughs) Uh, yeah, we're not here. To, we're not here to all of, trash the gun. <laughs> un, well, underneath all of the graphs, yeah, like um, it's obviously a well-made gun, but also it has like some unique features, like really interchangeable products. Mm-hmm. Sorry, interchangeable parts. Like um, through all, most of the variants, can accept most of the other versions of its uh, clip sizes and munitions. Right, and, like. If you're, if you're the person in the police office who manages like the armory, um, that's a huge way to control your costs. Is to have like, oh, I basically just need to focus on ammunition and I'm good. Like, so if I need to uh, reissue a bunch of like Glock 17s, and um, they need parts for in order to be repaired or something, and there's a bunch of Glock 19s sitting around, you can you know cannibalize some of that and use it in the 17s. Yeah. Yeah. So really interchangeable parts and like, you know, like it's Glock's kind of an anomaly in that, you know, you have Walter who's willing to, who just happens to know everything about selling to U.S. police, police departments. So Mm -hmm. that's sort of like the, the lucky break, I guess he got for the U.S. market. Right. But, um, 
there were like some genuine sort of logistical and supply chain reasons for why police departments would really want to have that. So like it, it uses the most common ammunition types of like nine millimeter by 19 parabellum, which yeah. is like one of the most common ones in the world. It's and like, also 10 millimeter. He's like, we're going to get um, people to uh, shout this out in rap music. And that's <laughs> going to make it a lot easier to plant on people that you just shot. Well, that's the thing is, uh, uh, forget, I think it was an ABC story talked about how Tupac, uh, of course, said, grab your Glocks when you see Tupac, and then he was later murdered by a Glock, 17. Mm. It's the circle of life, Akuna Matata and all that. <laughs> live, live by the <laughs> Pac, die by the... Yeah. Sean, it's time to do another advertisement. Oh, is it? Yes. All it's right. that time again. So this is, this is another one they sent us. Um, I guess it's a script, so I, I, I'm just going to read this this script ad, and uh, hopefully it comes off all right. Do a little theater of the mind here. All right. Open up, ATF. There are 17 ATF agents outside your door. We came in an unmarked UN black helicopter. We are here to take your guns. Do you know what you would do in this scenario? Only Glock has a 17-round magazine. Or clip, which are interchangeable terms. <laughs> Can your gun kill all of the ATF agents outside of your door without reloading? Glock 17, the only way to protect yourself from the United Nations. I guess we should make clear, Grubstakers does not endorse killing ATF agents. It's just, you know, that's what the copy said. Oh, we don't? Yeah, that's what oh. the copy said. <laughs> oh, and so, okay. so, look, we just, we, we read the ads that people pay us to read, okay? <laughs> we want to make sure everybody knows if you're an employee of the federal government, we would never endorse such a radical thing. I mean, that's another irony here is we'll, we'll talk a little bit about, of course, the NRA, but, you know, Wayne LaPierre, the NRA president, has compared ATF agents to, like, Nazis coming to, like, take the guns and really stoked, again, this black helicopter, United Nations, let's kill the fucking pigs when they try to take our guns shit. So Glock works with the NRA on the one hand, but on the other hand, the bulk of their income is selling the guns to these, you know, jackbooted Nazi thugs who are supposedly coming to take the guns. So it's a real irony where, on the one hand, the NRA sells guns to civilians by scaring people making them afraid that the fucking feds are coming to take their guns. Can On the, the other UN hand, even afford a black helicopter? <laughs> sure it's not the the <laughs> United Nations Ford Windstar. Yeah. But you know, it, it is it is one of those ironies that Glock manages to uh let's say uh toe the line pretty well, stay in the middle of the stream without getting pulled too far in one direction or the other, but very clearly egging on both factions of this. But so uh, we wanted to mention here is how they start selling to police. So according to the, the UN has issued a resolution to condemn your guns. <laughs> uh, so in 1986, the first U.S. police department adopts the Glock as its standard issue. I believe like a year or two later, Miami adopts it. It becomes like the first major police department and this is in the 80s you know there's a murder epidemic in, in miami so the cops they all feel outgunned they need 
you know, semi-autos. Um, but the story is that we mentioned, you know, Glock has this Atlanta facility. They do four-day training sessions, uh, usually for police or military, where the trainer will come out, they'll spend four days learning uh, how to be certified so they can go back and teach the rest of their cops how to, how to do it. But according to the Paul Barrett book, on the final day of this training, which is usually a Thursday, they take everybody out to the Gold Club, a local Atlanta strip club. And uh, uh, apparently Glock people spend so much money there that Thursdays become Glock night at that strip club. <laughs> and um, I just wanted to quote a former police official from uh, the Paul Barrett book, quote, for a lot of guys coming in from out of town, this was the best time they were going to have all year or maybe in their entire life. You go to uh, the club Oh, you go to the uh, Glock facility, you get laid at the best strip club in town, drink champagne, you're not going to forget the experience when it comes time to choose between Glock and Smith and & Wesson. So the point is, they take all these police officials out, they uh, introduce them to sex workers, they spend, you know, 10000 or however much on champagne and beer and shots and all that shit, and then it's like, they go back to their police department and they're like, yeah, we should order the Glock. So and Also, sex work is work. Yes. <laughs> It is something where, it should be noted, the Gold Club in Atlanta would be later shut down by the FBI because the owners had mafia ties. So throughout the book, you know, Glock officials deny, we never broke the law and provided uh, sex prostitutes to cops, but it's very clear that they did. And, you know, that's one way to market your pistol. I would love for Glock to come out as pro-sex work. <laughs> <laughs> The only way it should be FBI. legalized and regulated. That's all we're saying here. Well, the FBI shut down that club for not recognizing sex work as work. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so the other thing that happens is in the uh, mid '80s, there's a plastic gun scare. You might have seen this in some old '80s movies about everybody gets freaked out that you can take these plastic guns through the airport and they won't show up on the scanner. Uh, the Glock was never like that. It was only part plastic. It does show up on, you know, airport uh, metal detectors and scanners, but it does become part of this Glock scare, uh, plastic gun scare, where that actually, in turn, provides a lot more publicity, where, you know, the Washington Post and such writes about it, and then all these civilian gun owners are like, oh, the government's going to try to ban it. I got to go buy a Glock. And it's first mentioned in Hollywood in the movie Die Hard 2. Bruce Willis, uh, uh, Detective John McClane, uh, he says, I'm uh, paraphrasing, he says, that's a those, those, the bad guys had Glock 7s. You know what that is? It's a plastic gun, undetectable on a metal detector that costs more than you make in a month. <laughs> so, like, you know, again, all wrong. But because it's mentioned in Die Hard, that also spreads awareness, publicity, all this kind of free publicity that you just can't buy. I'm pretty sure the 3D printer industry used that, like, eight years ago mm -hmm. that same marketing strategy where people are like they're going to be able to print guns yeah and it's like any gun made of plastic is going to blow up in your hand but yeah like uh so according to the paul barrett book apparently congress banned pla all plastic guns i don't know if they have since repealed that but it was something where they investigated glock and they instead just banned all plastic guns they didn't ban the glocks Mm. But um, Glocks aren't completely plastic. Right? right, they're only partially plastic. Yeah. But that is another thing. They have is a metal it, firing pin. It makes it lighter. Oh, yeah. 
So when you're at a live podcast show, it'll... <laughs> and other metal parts that I, I probably don't know about. Be a lot more difficult, <laughs> a lot easier to pull it out of your knapsack. There won't be as much drag or weight as competing models. Oh, I guess the ad read's over. Um, but what I wanted to mention was uh, another thing that helps police departments adopt it is Glock engages in a revolving door with police departments, which a lot of gun manufacturers do. Oh, that's ironic. Yes. So... Uh, what Glock will do is they'll start hiring former police procurement officers. So if you're the police procurement officer or the guy at your local station who says, let's all switch to Glock, and then you can retire and you have a do-nothing job with Glock when you retire. So the Paul Barrett book goes through a few different instances of that. Um, I just have an office full of, like, weapons acquisition jerk-off rooms. <laughs> procurement. Yeah. You mean? Yeah. Procurement, yeah. yeah. But so, you know, it's uh, it's really just kind of a rocket ship from here where, uh, according to the book, uh, Glock in 1996 ships 213,000 pistols to the USA. Oh, another thing Carl Walter comes up with is uh, Gaston Glock wants, because it's part plastic, it's cheaper to make. So their margins are much higher than other gun makers. And so Gaston Glock wants to sell it for like cheap. But Carl Walter's like, no, if you sell it for cheap, then it'll be a cheap gun. You have to sell it for like... <laughs> An expensive price, so people will say, oh, yeah. it's you know a desirable quality item. And so their margins are that much higher because they're selling at full price, but they're, hmm. it's much cheaper to make. That's interesting. He wanted to keep it at the same price point in the market pretty right. much. Mm -hmm. So there's some price administration discipline there. So you could say that extra um, margin is money for nothing. <laughs> um, but I wanted to mention... No. It, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to mention just kind of spree killing, which at this point, if you live in the United States, you're pretty much used to. It's it's not even a news story anymore. It's the fucking section A8 of the New York Times when 20 people get shot. Um, yeah, now on Twitter when people are like, can you believe there was another mass shooting? It's like, yeah. Well, I, I, I don't understand how people on Twitter get mad when there's a mass shooting. I mean, I guess it's it's probably the, the better reaction, but... It is, it's it's sort of like, yeah, those happen now. <laughs> but so one of the first that involved a Glock was called the Luby's shooting in Texas, in, the Luby massacre in Texas in 1991. Some uh, guy drives his car into a restaurant in Texas, and he has a Glock 17. He murders 23 people uh, before he's taken down. And I just found it a little disturbing because, again, this is 1991, and so Glock is, you know inundated with uh, press requests for comment and these sorts of things. And they don't really at first know what to do with the public relations, how to respond to this. But it was disturbing to me reading the book because the playbook is exactly the same as it has been since 1991. And I'll just read like a, a short bit here where uh, a, a firearms um, lobbyist is advising uh, one of the Glock in-house lawyers on how to respond to this massacre of 23 people. Make sure to say that this was a terrible tragedy. Whatever you do, do not say no comment. Uh, it was, he insisted that Glock hold a press conference, uh, empathize with the victims and community. Obviously, the killer was another crazy. Be sure to stress how it was the criminal, not the gun. Tell the press how many police and law enforcement agencies are now armed with Glocks. And, um... This is another situation of a good gun with a guy. Yes. <laughs> and also, I mean, this is around where all those concealed carry laws start coming, where every state passes concealed carry, um... 
an, a, a survivor of that massacre goes on to become a Republican member of Congress where she advocates for concealed carry. And she said, oh, if I, I'd been able to concealed carry there, you know, I could have stopped this guy. I so, remember her saying that on Penn and Teller's bullshit. Oh, yeah. About guns. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember that episode. That was the episode where they did the completely debunked statistic that uh, concealed carry reduces crime rates, which there's <laughs> absolutely no evidence for. Um, but regardless... It was just kind of disturbing to me where it's like, it's just the same playbook and we've all given up on the idea. But another thing that happens is in 1994, there's the assault weapons ban, which is a law that was full of holes where part of it was it was still legal to sell guns manufactured before the assault weapons ban. So what Glock does is they just turn the factory into overdrive and they until the law goes into effect, they're like, we're going to make a ton of shit and we can actually now sell it for like double or triple the price. So it doesn't really reduce the amount of assault weapons at all. But one, I think, sensible part of that law was they restricted magazine size to 10 bullets. Whereas, again, we mentioned the Glock is 17. It's only 10 bullets per clip. Well, and there's various clip sizes. Yes, but... The idea of the idea legally is that ten is the maximum, and I think that's very sensible uh, because the other thing is, you know, the guy who shot Gabby Gifford's, Giffords had a Glock with I think a legal thirty round clip magazine, <laughs> thirty three, <laughs> yeah, actually. But the point is, you know, if you're if you want to stop spree killing, which I think everybody's given up on the idea that we're going to have any sort of gun ban in the United States, but if you want to stop spree you killing, you have to get where the money is at first, right? Before, but yeah, the idea is that if you're going to walk into a public place and shoot people, you shouldn't be able to shoot more than ten times before you have to reload, which theoretically will give people an opportunity to get away or tackle the shooter or whatever else. Again, the guy who shot Gabby Giffords had a thirty-three round clip magazine clip (laughs) who uh he was tackled after he had to reload but of course he could kill you know six people and brain injure gabby giffords because it's a semi-auto so there is this 10 round limit in it of course george w bush allows it to expire it's never been brought back but it is something where gaston glock and glock incorporated of course lobby against these things and have never really taken responsibility or any of the gun companies for their role in allowing spree killing to be that much more deadly when it does happen. But yeah, so as we mentioned, uh, up to this point, Glock is selling a ton of, of product in the United States. Uh, this assault weapons ban in 1994 is actually really what, um, really what uh, uh, pushes the uh, Black Helicopters United Nations conspiracy theories that you see a lot throughout the 90s, where the NRA in particular... I don't think they can even afford that much black paint. <laughs> the NRA in particular um, really pushes this, and uh, it makes people, you know, of course, lobby, give money to the NRA because they're supposedly protecting the Second Amendment, but also buy guns and stockpile. And I just wanted to quote um, an ad the NRA, in 1995, the NRA bought a full-page advertisement in the Washington Post and USA Today accusing the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms of terrorizing ordinary gun owners. It was a large photo that showed helmeted, black-clad federal agents armed with submachine guns breaking into a home. Uh, Clinton policies would lead the Bureau of Alcohol and Tobacco and Firearms firearms to, quote, intensify its range of stormtrooper tactics. Um and the uh, uh, Wayne LaPierre, who was uh, the 
uh, at the NRA, the current president, he distributed a fundraising letter around the same time claiming the Clinton administration's semi-auto ban gives jackbooted government thugs more power to take away our constitutional rights, break in our doors, seize our guns, destroy our property, and even injure or kill us. Uh, he said, "Not to quote, not too long ago, it was unthinkable for federal agents wearing Nazi bucket helmets and Subtext, black... the government's going to start treating us like we're black Americans. <laughs> not too long ago, it was unthinkable for federal agents wearing Nazi bucket helmets and black stormtrooper uniforms to attack law-abiding citizens. Not today. Wayne LaPierre in 1995. So I do just enjoy the irony of, you know, they say the left calls everyone Nazis. It's like, well, they're calling <laughs> ATF agents Nazis and probably uh, providing, um, let's say, incentive for right-wingers to murder them. Ignoring Nazi cops who just kill black and brown people. Well, you know what the Nazis wanted to regulate? Tobacco. Hitler didn't smoke. (laughs) Uh Um, Firearms, according to what probably is just an urban myth. And uh, alcohol, because they needed it to power their V2 rockets. Mm -hmm. But... What I wanted to mention here is, you know, by the 90s, we mentioned 1992, Gaston Glock fires Carl Walter, the guy who made him a a billionaire by selling to the United States. Um, And just from there, it's really been a wild ride of pure profit where Glock is um, a huge chunk of the U.S. pistol market. I don't know the exact percentage, but I think they're even over half of the semi-automatic pistols sold in the United States, which is, again, the major market in the, uh, the world. And uh, September 11th, of course, helps them even more, according to the Paul Mm -hmm. Barrett book. uh, uh, Of course, government contracts for Glocks go through the roof. According to the Paul Barrett book, uh, the U.S. government buys more than 200,000 Glocks to give to the Iraqi and Afghan police and military. And also, according to the book, at least 80,000 of them went missing in Iraq (laughs) because it was, of course, you know, there was so much fraud and waste in Iraq that they bought these Glocks and gave them out and then they didn't have serial numbers or receipts. So a lot of the people like the Iraq policemen or whoever, they Mm -hmm. just sold their Glock for $800 because the entire economy fell apart. So, you know, these, of course, ended up in the hands of the insurgency and whoever else. Who could have seen any of this coming? Yes. So they just lost track of 80,000 Glocks in Iraq. But, you know, Glock doesn't give (laughs) a fuck. How could this have happened? (laughs) Glock doesn't give a fuck because they got paid and, you know, uh, all sorts of special forces. The FBI and DEA switched to Glock in 2000. I believe um, NYPD gives officers three choices, one of which is a Glock. So it is... uh, that is the bulk of their money is selling to cops, but then also buying back from cops, reselling to civilians, and having civilians want to have what the cops have. None of the NYPD cops ever choose the 1810s wooden pistol anymore. <laughs> That's one of the three choices. Uh, oh, I should mention, in 1985, Gaston Glock sets up a shell company in Luxembourg, and he gets the guy. He gets a shady guy to set up his shell company, uh, and this shady guy later tries to murder him. <laughs> Usually try to get like a legit guy to set up your shell company. <laughs> well, so these, the story is in 85, Gaston Glock sets up a holding company in Luxembourg and uh, they set up in turn, this guy sets up a bunch of other fake shell companies. And what these shell companies will do is they, the holding company is given a 50% share of Glock Incorporated 
but Gaston Glock, when he was like deposed during a trial, denied that he had any idea who owned the shell company that owned 50% <laughs> of his company. And of course, it was him. He still owns the shell company. Mm-hmm. But these shell companies will send fake invoices to Glock Incorporated. Like they have one in Ireland, one in Panama. They'll send nice. these they'll send these bills to Glock Incorporated uh, for fake services and then they will reduce their reported revenue to the irs and the austrian taxing authorities and according to a whistleblower in the paul barrett book glock was dodging i believe is still dodging about nine to ten million dollars in u.s taxes annually just by having these shell companies send fake invoices and lower the amount they're reporting to u.s tax authorities well this is going to be really unpopular with the people who are stockpiling his product Um, but oh yeah, so the story with this guy who sets up his shell company in Luxembourg, uh, is Glock finds out that this guy has been stealing from him, which is, you know, it's just horrifying that the man who helped you avoid hundreds of millions (laughs) in U.S. taxes would, uh, take a little taste for himself. But so Glock, Gaston Glock finds out this guy's been skimming a little off the top. So Gaston Glock calls him and says, uh, says, we got to meet in Luxembourg. We got to have a serious conversation. And this guy recognizes Gaston Glock is very disturbed or like sounds angry, you know. So in 1999, um, I forget uh, how old Glock was then. Oh, he was 80 years old. Uh, Glock's 80 years old. He goes out to Luxembourg. He meets this guy, and this guy says, before we go to the meeting, I got to show you this cool luxury car that I got. So he takes Gaston Glock to a garage. Uh, They walk down to, like, the third level, so they're totally alone, just him and Gaston Glock, and he shows him this luxury car, and then a uh, former member of the French Foreign Legion comes out of the (laughs) shadows and starts hitting Glock with a rubber hammer. But because Glock had been, like, swimming his entire life, uh, swimming, you know, miles a day. Uh-huh. He's actually able to fight off this former member of the French Foreign Legion. I guess the Legionnaire guy was 69, Glock was 80. Which again, you know, get a younger hitman if you're going nice. to do this. Also, if you're going to kill a gun manufacturer, <laughs> don't come at him with a rubber hammer. It's weird that, like, he get, like he did un- he get it at a street carnival before he? <laughs> he was unarmed, right? <laughs> so the Paul Barrett explanation in the book is that uh, Glock. Uh, Glock's associate wanted to make the murder look like an accident so their idea was they could do an accident kill hitman style if they hit him with a rubber hammer and said he fell downstairs but it is at a, it is entirely unclear if rubber hammer blows would look like falling downstairs injury at all <laughs> it just seems like a really stupid hit attempt also the fact that he lures him into a garage where the hitman is and then like <laughs> I mean, it's very hard to get plausible deniability in when you are the one who brings him to the scene where the hitman just happens to be waiting. I mean, if if you manage to kill him, I don't think anyone's going to be like, hey, Glock said that you were going down to a garage with him because <laughs> they lost their prime witness. Yes, that is true. Um But, you know, so regardless, Glock survives. The way it's told is Glock, like, uh, beats this guy and, like, knocks some of his teeth out. And and apparently they pass out on top of each other. And then the cops find them like that. Um, But Glock survives. You know, he has, uh, he loses some blood, but he's okay. And uh, both the hitman and Glock's former associate are uh, convicted in Luxembourg court. I think the hitman does, like, seven years. The associate, I believe, is still in prison today. 
in Luxembourg. Like how Glock wasn't armed. Yeah, he gets like a 20-year sentence. Yes, for whatever reason. He didn't have a concealed carry In Luxembourg, Glock did not have his gun. Um, But it is the kind of thing where, you know, you deal with shady people who are thieves who set up tax avoidance shell companies and then this kind of thing happens and uh but you know glock has been very good at spin gaston glock has been very good at spinning all these things in his favor where um the luxembourg court actually establishes that the shell companies are engaging in tax avoidance but of course it's luxembourg they don't give a shit that's what their entire economy is based on so they just have to establish who owns what like whether or not Glock or his associate actually owns the thing. And in doing so, they lay out the entire tax avoidance scam, which Paul Barrett goes through in, in the book. But it is something where, of course, Luxembourg has no penalties for that. And so Gaston Glock is able to get some sympathy from this, you know, murder attempt. And then later, some of his lawyers are also embezzling from him. Um, one of the lawyers gets charged with embezzlement. Uh, he flees to the Netherlands, uh, where he's later extradited back. And uh, he actually became the IRS whistleblower we mentioned. But the other thing is, of course, the IRS can't use that because he fed a, f- a, flel- a felony, or at least that's what uh, Paul Barrett seems to imply, where this IRS whistleblower can't be a reliable witness for the IRS because he, he fed uh, fled embezzlement charges. So Glock gets away with a lot. He fled a flat-off pal- fel- <laughs> He fled from he a, fled flo- a flo- phlebotomist. <laughs> God damn it. And, you know, Glock, uh, of course, the factory in Atlanta means that they have a lot of political donations to Georgia and Atlanta politicians, where another thing this uh, IRS whistleblower alleges, I think very credibly, is Glock has engaged in a lot of illegal political donations, where he'll give, you know, say $60,000 to his employees, and he'll say, each of you are donating $2,000 to ex-Georgia congressional candidate. So Glock will do straw donors, which is another felony, to fund local Georgia politicians who will, of course, protect his interests in the Congress. Uh, I hope the FEC doesn't get wind of this or he'll be in trouble. (laughs) Yes. And uh, I guess I wanted to I wanted to read a quote here of one of the former lawyers who stole from Glock his quote that Paul Barrett uh, quotes as to uh, why he stole from Glock. Glock is not Snow White. He's got a lot of skeletons. He's done in my mind a lot of things that are much worse than what I and the other lawyer did. He makes roughly $200,000 a day. He personally. He spends money on mistresses, on houses, on sex, on cars. He bribes people. He's just a bad guy. And with all this money laying around, he needed it like a hole in the head. And we just, you know, we let our greed and our ethical standards slip. It wasn't like we were stealing from Mother Teresa. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he also, I believe, compares Glock to like a person engaged in racketeering, where it's like very clear that he is. Where another thing Paul Barrett lays out is Glock is like sexually harassing various employees. Uh, Canceled. He hires this assistant and he's always grabbing her in public and and these sorts of things and uh, making her uh, do errands for his mistresses and all this other stuff. Where, I mean, the guy is a, a fucking criminal. He's engaged in criminal tax avoidance. He's in gra- engaged in uh, criminal bribery in the term, uh, form of political donations. So it's, yeah, the lawyers have a point. They're stealing <laughs> from a criminal, which I, you know, one of them is doing a, te- a seven-year sentence in Georgia, but 
that's not the worst crime going on here. It's just a case where he has set up in Atlanta and employed some people in Atlanta and made political donations. So, of course, the Georgia legal system is going to say we will protect Glock and we will prosecute these people stealing from him. Right, right. Mm -hmm. All right, so with with the time we have left here, I just wanted to mention a, a few miscellaneous things about Glock himself. <laughs> he apparently, uh, so he's 90 years old now. Wait, do you, do you want YouTube to do the talking on this one? Oh, yes. Here's a YouTube video describing Gaston Glock. How he created the empire that we now know as Glock. Gaston's still alive right now, doing real well. He's 83. He's got a 31-year-old wife. We're going to talk about that. She's smoking hot. <laughs> But did you guys realize that 1999, someone tried messing with Gaston? All right. Uh, what is that from that guy, Weapons and something or other.com? Yeah, it's uh, Weapons Education. Yes. From a guy who is clearly drunk. Later in the video, he urges you. He says, she's hot. You should go and you should look up her picture right now. It's, it's actually inspiring to... Uh, see someone so successful in media who's drunker than we are <laughs> but uh so glock the 31 year old wife glock divorces his wife who again helped him make you know the curtain rods and the knives and the factory and all that he divorces his wife and his wife ex-wife has sued him twice saying that that 31 year old lady is a nurse who attended to him after his stroke and his ex-wife alleges she convinced him to uh, fire all three of his children from the company and also cut his wife out, where the wife used to own 15%. Now she owns like 1%. Uh, she's sued him twice. Both of the suits got thrown out. But another thing that his 31-year-old wife Entirely does... Entirely plausible. I mean, if, if you're yeah. going to be... If you're 30 and you're going to marry a guy who's on his deathbed, you're <laughs> going to cut the family out of that will. Uh his new wife has the Glock. I think it's a horse training academy. It's just one of those things oh, that yeah. Glock set up in Austria to like do. Uh, a apparently, also Gaston Glock spent fifteen million dollars on a prize horse for his wife, which is was at the time a record-setting price for a horse. That's uh, right. He's in the he's in the horse sphere of billionaires. <laughs> so there are non-horse billionaires that we've covered in horse ones. Mm -hmm. Uh, Glock also has claimed... I just imagine that her as a little girl, you know, not very long ago, playing with horses, and she's like, I'm going to start the greatest horse academy, and her friends are like, no, you're not, and she's like, yes, I will. I will find a way. <laughs> uh, so Glock has also, according to the Paul Barrett book, he's told, Gaston Glock has told friends he intends to live to be 120, he's 90 years old now, and he does this by eating a dietary supplement he calls Megamine, Megamine, which apparently is volcanic ash he said it's derived from volcanic ash and he says by eating volcanic ash that has like minerals and other properties that allow you to live to 120 um yeah well, that's that's, <laughs> yeah, just, that's, that's that's some Austri austrian guy's shit yeah that's a little known fact is that you can live longer by eating rocks a derivative of volcanic ash which, when ground finely and taken orally, could enter human cells and purge them of impurities. Right. He's eating sand. <laughs> <laughs> it came out recently that life expect... I mean, it didn't come out recently. It's kind of been known for a while. But life expectancy, if you're uh, under a certain income, is dropping. And then, of course, life expectancy is increasing if you're over a certain income. And it's just like knowing that... 
and then realizing that like there's this one billionaire who's 90 and perfectly healthy who eats sand on a daily <laughs> basis is just the extra slap in the face like he's just showing off the him eating sand is could go down as like one of the things preventing him from living to 120 <laughs> like otherwise his, his lavish lifestyle and like generally okay eating eating habits otherwise would get him there yeah that's like but billionaires, the sand he holds him back that's that's their like uh amongst billionaires that seems to be their greatest weakness is their own ideas of what constitutes good health like <laughs> steve jobs obviously um this Italian guy he probably uh, drinks a, f- a fair amount of red wine. Yeah, or, sorry, yeah. he's Austrian guy that drinks a fair amount of red wine. And yeah, it's like it's white ne- wines over there. It's negated by volcanic oh. ash. He's like, <laughs> yeah. I I eat ash to live longer. It's so pure. I have it imported directly from Poland, <laughs> originally manufactured in the 1940s. <laughs> it's because a good year. Do you know that there was a fad in the 19th century where people would eat mummy dust? Really? That uh, doesn't surprise me. Yeah, it was it was supposed to be healthy, but it's just literally like, it, it's like a snake oil salesman. He's like, cannibalism! What, it just says formaldehyde? No, no, it was, it was like, it was supposed to be chunks of Egyptian mummies ground up. That was probably like... So wouldn't that just be old formaldehyde and stuff? I don't think they had formaldehyde then. Oh, they didn't? Okay. No, I think that's a recent invention. Uh, Some other embalming fluid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, regardless, you know, Glock is 90 years old now. In August of this year, 2019, he celebrated his 90th birthday. The Daily Mail pointed out that Naomi Campbell, noted sex trafficker, was there. (laughs) Uh, Naomi Campbell was there. Hugh Grant was there. John Travolta was at his 90th birthday party. And the Daily Mail wrote an article about how they're hypocritical because they they do little Instagram statements about stop the gun violence while also hanging out at... Gaston Glock's 90th birthday party. But I, I'm more interested about his Jeffrey Epstein connection <laughs> with Naomi Campbell being there. Um, but, you know, it is something where he's 90 years old. He's apparently fired his three children from the company. He's got his mistress uh, in line to take over I'll the company. I'll be honest, I support that. Yeah. Down with nepotism. <laughs> uh, he's got his mistress in line to take over the company. His wife, ex-wife, has tried to sue him a couple times, but those suits have been thrown out. So... It is something where we'll see what happens to both the company and the money when he dies. But I wanted to close out with just a little bit of the Austrian Freedom Party. You think his current wife told him to do the sand thing? Because <laughs> she knows that like, if he lives to 120, he's going to divorce her when she's 40. She's just tired of waiting around. She's like, I married this guy when he was fucking 80 and he's not done yet. <laughs> like, what can I get him to eat? <laughs> the volcanic... Sand was her idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Honey, have you thought about eating diesel fuel? (laughs) Like, if you just put a bit of diesel fuel in the coffee, you know, like, tanks use it. And so, if you're, like, a tank, like, that's more durable. No, it's organic diesel fuel. (laughs) It's biodiesel. Yeah. It's fossils. You know, it's just like the ash. It comes from fossils. So, you're actually eating the ancient creatures, and you get their Tyrannosaurus strength. When you, know, you eat old things, you'll also be old. <laughs> you know, maybe the volcanic ash thing isn't enough. Maybe you should uh, huff pure sulfur. Um, but I wanted to mention the Austrian Freedom Party. Uh, so we mentioned Gaston Glock when he was originally getting Austrian government contracts in the 80s. Uh, he was a member of the Austrian Socialist Party. Uh, 
unsurprisingly, after he became a billionaire, he became a fascist. <laughs> uh, the Austrian Freedom Party was founded by a former SS member. Uh, its leader in the uh, 1980s, up until I think he died in 2008, was a guy named Jörg Haider. And so he's uh, just from the Paul Barrett book. He served many years as the governor, uh, as a governor in Austria. He was notorious internationally for making a series of provocative pro-Nazi statements in the 1990s. He praised elite SS troops as, quote, men of character, and he hailed the wisdom of Hitler's, quote, orderly employment policy, unquote. Well, I mean, David Bowie said those same things when he was uh, fucked up on cocaine in the... <laughs> 80s but so the paul barrett book goes through uh one time uh, an american lawyer went out uh, to visit glock in austria and uh uh they went to get a beer and then hater showed up and they were like glock and hater greeted like heroes and the lawyer <laughs> described it as beer hall putsch redux <laughs> uh so, and Glock also sued some uh, Austrian media outlets for implying he was supporting Hater, but he very clearly gave financial support to Hater. And at a later point, he took Hater out to America, uh, Glock did, and he got him in touch with some American PR people to try to repair his international image for these Hitler comments. And interestingly enough, it became a minor note in the Rudy Giuliani Hillary Clinton uh, abortive Senate race for New York. When Rudy Giuliani originally thought he was running for Senate, uh, this hater guy uh, shows up at a New York dinner uh, on Glock's invitation uh, that they were that Rudy Giuliani was at. So Hillary Clinton puts out a thing about how Rudy Giuliani was at this dinner with a neo-Nazi <laughs> and Rudy Giuliani was like, I had no idea who that guy was, but it's more illustrative of uh, the fact that Glock is funding a, a neo-Nazi yeah. and uh, <laughs> that's where his political loyalties lie. And that's what, you know, he'll yell at you if you buy a $29 headset. But if you're like funding the uh, Hitler had an orderly employment policy guy, <laughs> that's a good use of company money. That was probably like the third worst person that Giuliani affiliated <laughs> himself with in that room on that night. Yeah. But, um, you know, that's the story of Gaston Glock, a, uh, a fascist who uh, makes money on both ends of uh, giving arms to the jackbooted Nazi thugs, giving uh, political support to the Austrian jackbooted Nazi thugs, but also giving political donations to the NRA, as it says you should murder jackbooted Nazi thugs if they try to take your guns or pass any sort of regulation. And... Again, his his fortune is based on murder. His fortune is based on the 33,000 gun deaths in the United States every year. Uh, and there are lots of modest steps he could take to mitigate some of those gun deaths. And he fights them tooth and nail at every step. And with that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll see what happens with Glock. We'll see what happens with his kids. We'll see what happens with guns in the United States. I, I think I have a sound effect for the, the future of Glock. Wait. Andy, can you play <laughs> the phasers? Uh, could you could you play what happens when his mistress finally gets tired of him in five years? Hello, nine one one. My husband just shot himself. <laughs> he was using a Glock seventeen. It fired four times. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Grub Stakers. Check us out on Patreon. We'll see you next week. Bye. 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 I'm Sean McCarthy. Bye-bye. Steve Jeffries. Punk, 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 punk,
Ich hatte Schulden, 